I'll start with a little story uh, that I read in an obituary just a couple of months ago of Shoji Sadeo, who had died, and he was one of the he was the architect who worked with Buckminster Fuller, who designed the first geodesic dome. Appeared in the uh, 1967 at the Montreal World's Fair. And Sadeo is quoted in the obituary as uh, speaking at an event about 20 years earlier and saying that he thought there would be a lot of commercial interest in the geodesic dome and in fact saw very limited interest. He was quoted as saying the interest primarily came from the, quote, hippie world, I guess you'd call it. And he referred in this interview to talking to one potential customer who headed a commune outside of Boston, wanted a 60-foot diameter geodesic dome with the sides open. And Sadeo asked him, well, why would you want the sides open? It's cold in Massachusetts. And he replied, well, a number of our commune residents practice meditation and they levitate and then an easy way out to get out of the structure. <laughs> we have a lot of ceiling space here. You can levitate upwards, but not outwards. <laughs> so tonight, uh, share at a fairly high level the Buddha's teachings. <laughs> Laughter's in the room. <laughs> share at a, at a fairly high level the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths that support a wise view at the, uh, in our practice of first path factor. And I'll particularly emphasize the uh, Dukkha, the first noble truth, a little bit more on the second noble truth, and just touch on the third and fourth noble truths. So Dukkha, the cause of Dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the path leading to the end of dukkha, Four Noble Truths. And I'll start too now with a story on the Buddha. Buddha was born into a royal family, a very wealthy family. And he was protected by his family from all that was unpleasant. And this is how the Buddha described his life. I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. Lily pools were made for me at my father's three houses, solely for my benefit. Blue lilies flowered in one house, white lilies in another, and red lilies in the third house. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust, or grit, or dew, might inconvenience me. So very well protected, had all the imaginable material goods for, for happiness. But he ventured outside the palace gates, and he saw an old person, a sick person, a dead body, is quoted as saying, coming close to sickness, to old age and death, I recognized I too am subject to old age, to sickness, to death. So it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, or disgusted by seeing old age, sickness, and death. So why being subject to these things do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Why seeking after attachment to material things of the world that are all subject to passing away? So his recognition of this put him on the path, led him to become a renunciant, to go into homelessness. He went in search of the unborn, the unaging, the deathless, the supreme release, a happiness and peace not conditioned 
on anything of the world. So it might be that old age, sickness, death, might be one of the things that brought to you, brought you to practice as well. Many different reasons we come into this practice. But for most of us, suffering is one of the, the key components that brings us here. Physical pain, mental suffering, pain in the body, the difficult emotions. For me, coming into the practice 19 years ago, plenty of dukkha, a whole lot of dukkha. I had pain in the body and I was at war with that pain. I had to get rid of that pain to be happy. A real sense of being separate, kind of alone, not connected as a result of that pain. In addition, I had many good things in life. Wasn't quite as well protected as the Buddha, but when he lived in the palace with, the, with his father. And, but I had a very good job, financial security, a partner, now my husband after 25 years. Lived in San Francisco, lots of good things. But it felt like it wasn't enough. There was a fear of losing it all. Maybe that recognition the Buddha felt that nothing would last. All of the material things we attach to ultimately pass away. Don't provide lasting satisfaction, lasting happiness. So for me, hearing the first noble truths right in this hall, the four noble truths for the first time, it uh, really resonated deep inside. Just to, to hear that there is suffering, the acknowledgement there is suffering, that this is a universal condition, that I wasn't alone in my suffering and that there is a cause, and that these can be understood, and that there is the potential to open to peace, to realize an end to suffering, and that the Buddha offered this path of practice that leads to the very end. So something deep inside of me resonated with that. I couldn't explain it, but it was a calling, a calling to a deeper happiness, a deeper peace. say the Four Noble Truths are encapsulated in the quote from the Buddha that James read on Sunday night, that the Buddha teaches suffering, I teach, quote, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And it's by directly understanding, realizing, directly understanding, coming close to being present with suffering seeing its cause that we were able to realize an end of suffering. So it's kind of like I was doing exactly the wrong thing and trying to turn away from the pain, turn away from the difficult emotions I was experiencing before coming into the practice. So the noble truth of dukkha, first noble truth. This best translated as unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, kind of a bad fit, often also translated as suffering. But unreliable, unsatisfactory is, is actually a better description, a better translation. And this is the dukkha of old age, sickness and death, dukkha of impermanence, dukkha of the conditioned experience, the conditionality of all experience. The second noble truth of the cause of dukkha, the craving for sense pleasure, for what is pleasurable, pleasant, to be, to not to be. The noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the end of suffering, that peace is possible with the end of craving. 
the noble truth of the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. The eightfold path, the noble eightfold path. Not to just be understood at a conceptual level, but to be realized viscerally, directly. To really know these truths at a very direct, visceral level. In speaking to this, the uh, Buddha said, when the truths are fully realized, here one knows as it really is, this is dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the cause of dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is a cessation of dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is a way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So we're on this path of practice. We're all on this path of practice. And recognizing the Four Noble Truths provides a perspective, a view of practice. It's like I connected with a view of practice when I first heard those first Four Noble Truths. It's like being on a path, we need to know a destination. And the Four Noble Truths provide that clarity on the destination as well as the path of practice that we're following. So this is part of wise view, the recognition of the Four Noble Truths as well as wise view recognizes the law of karma, recognizes that all actions without consequences, all actions without exception have consequences. Uh, just pausing and reconnecting in the body for a moment. So this view, this wise view, most importantly recognizes that peace is possible. And there's fruits of practice for all of us at every stage along the path of practice. It's not just it's really not a path, a path of practice about getting anywhere or attaining anything. It's about direct realization. And there's fruits of practice at every step along the way. Happiness at every sta- stage along the path of practice. As James said on Sunday night, this is, is a path of happiness. Analyo, the Buddhist scholar and monk, acknowledges this is a path of happiness deepening at every stage along the way. So when I came into practice and I was at war with all of those painful body sensations that I needed to get get, get rid of, experiencing all of these difficult emotions, especially very strong fear, turning away from the fear rather than being present for the direct experience, trying to do everything I could to avoid feeling the discomfort in the body. And I came into the practice and then with the instructions I started to begin to gently bring the attention to the direct experience like we're doing here. Bringing the direct experience direct um, to directly experience suffering, to directly experience a difficult painful sensations of the body to be present for the emotion of fear. It was interesting when I started investigating where is fear felt in the body? It was right where the pain was being experienced. I never made that connection. And then beginning to practice as we're practicing here. It was kind of a courageous, compassionate heart to be present even in the face of great suffering to use a noting tool that Susie talked about this morning. And the the tool of RAIN, recognizing, accepting, being intimate with, not identifying, and noting, pulsing, heat, unpleasant, throbbing, fear, unpleasant, neutral, kind of being present for the moment-to-moment experience and recognizing 
that that pain I'd been experiencing was not just a solid, like a solid hot coal. I was present for the experience, it was changing moment to moment. Started to allow a healing process to occur. So we're turning toward our direct experience even when suffering is present. A courageous, compassionate heart, but also knowing wisely when to back off. Just as I did in my practice, my teacher knew that I was uh, loved to swim in the ocean, loved body surfing, and she would use the analogy for me, sometimes it's best to dive under the waves. And uh, so sometimes it's best in practice when, especially with fear, but really strong emotions, to shift the attention to the hearing of sounds. Hearing, hearing, brings a sense of spaciousness, a little bit of sense of ease. Fear can be so contracting or basically can feel like kind of the whole world at times closing up around the fear. And so shifting the attention to bring in the hearing, to bring in a sense of space, or even opening the eyes can be very important, wise tools to use in being with our practice. A couple of years later in my practice, I started experiencing a lot of tension in the, in the eyes, in the forehead area, and started bringing primary attention to that experience. My teachers recognized that it was an over-efforting. It was just a sign of an over-efforting, a striving, and to uh, let that go more to the background and be aware of the more direct body experience, to be more grounded in the body. So. The input that we provide as teachers can be very supportive in helping support your uh, your practice. So dukkha, dukkha is really immediately immediately knowable. We we know that there is the dukkha of old age, sickness, and death. There's the dukkha of not having what we want. We want a peaceful sit. We want perfect quiet in the hall. We want our bodies to be comfortable. So we don't always get that. And we get what we don't want. We get painful body sensations, unpleasant moods or emotions that arise, difficult, challenging emotions of grief, anger, jealousy, fear, shame, The second kind of dukkha of impermanence. Dukkha of uh, everything constantly changing at a macro and micro level. We know this at a certain level, but we're called upon to know it at a very visceral level to recognize the dukkha of impermanence. And there's a dukkha of the conditionality of all experience. No, no stage director, no one calling forth our experience. We can see this uh, just reflecting what you have called forth just in your last sit, the sensations, the sounds, the emotions, the thoughts that were arising, all arising from causes and conditions. No self directing the show. And ultimately, nothing of this body-mind experience to be called self. So I wanted to speak uh, and weave into this talk my experience as a hospice volunteer. So I'll speak a little bit about that tonight and how that supported my own practice, particularly in opening to this first noble truth of dukkha. So I'd been a hospice volunteer in the 90s for five years. But when I came back into this, came into this practice in 2001, I felt a calling to return to the hospice work with the support of the mindfulness practice. It really became a Dharma gate for me to be present with the dying, to be present with death. It's a Dharma gate for me, like a gate to open to the truth. And I'm not saying that this is a Dharma gate for everyone. 
maybe for a few folks here. And death is one of the, um, the contemplation of death is one of the 13 exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta that the Buddha outlines. It's a key practice, a key practice he emphasized, emphasized for enunciants in his time. From the Buddha, mindfulness of death is of great fruit and great benefit. So this practice by itself can lead to the very end of suffering. So is my practice of being a hospice volunteer every Sunday morning for five hours. It's like befriending, befriending death, coming close to death. Kind of recognizing the inevitability, the inevitability of death. Getting to loosen the hold of fear around death in my practice. Often at the deepest root of fear is a fear of death. It's interesting, I've seen this many times. For some, the sudden loss of a loved one or a serious health diagnosis for ourself or for a loved one can bring forth a great equanimity, a great, very strong equanimity that recognizes this is the way it is. It can't be any different. It's like this. And with that deep acceptance perhaps deep equanimity, there's a clarity, great clarity that can come forward. And the beautiful qualities of the heart that open up. So perhaps you can connect with that. Maybe perhaps you connect with that at some point of of an experience in your own life. I was just recently with a friend uh, who found out he had stage four cancer and he had no idea that he was seriously ill. And uh, I saw him about 10 days after he found out. And it was a shock, but he came into a deep level of acceptance very quickly, realizing this is the way it is. It's not a practitioner, not a formal practitioner. It was quite moving to be with him 10 days later and hear him speak words of gratitude that most of all, he felt gratitude for his life. He loved being in nature, he loved hiking. He has had a lot of that time in his life in nature, grateful for that, grateful for so many things. There was this great sense of peace and ease in his acceptance of his prognosis, his diagnosis. So entering into the hospice uh, practice, with a tool of mindfulness was a great support. The instructions for volunteers was to sit, listen, listen, and breathe. Sit, listen, and breathe. Sounds pretty similar to what we're doing here, doesn't it? And to be present. Really, that was the offering. It's interesting. Now with the practice of mindfulness coming back into the volunteer work, I'd catch this aversion and doubt that was present. It manifested for me as, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to do this work. It was painful to feel, to see. I use the tool of metta, one of the tools we offer here. I would sit, do my sitting before entering into the rooms, offering myself loving kindness. In effect, recognizing the suffering that was present the offering of metta as an act of kindness, as an act of compassion. And I could be more fully present for the residents as I entered the rooms. Often it was hard not to be fully present. And the presence of death kind of pulls all attention uh, to what's right there. I wasn't thinking ahead to what I was going to have for dinner or thinking about the day at work, the day before, right there with that direct experience. So, 
it's extraordinary to to be with many people as they died and um, many great teachers that I had. And three things really stood out in being with people as they died. Three words, ordinary, sacred, and beautiful. Ordinary, death is completely ordinary. It's inevitable. It's really, in many ways, an ordinary experience, but yet, Every life is sacred. Every life is sacred without exception. And every being without exception has this beautiful heart. Even beings who've caused harm. Even beings who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Beautiful hearts. Sacred. And the mysterious beauty that comes with a complete letting go. It's really beyond words. It's a feeling that I can't explain. But that's the word that comes forward. So it's a powerful way to see impermanence. To see the impermanence of this body and mind and supported my practice to be more directly present for my experience in the hall here as well, to bring a more refined attention to the moment-to-moment -moment experience. And we can see the changing nature right here, just in every moment, a very microscopic level, just in bringing to attention to the barest sense contact of Sensing, hearing, thinking is constantly arising and passing. We begin to recognize, as James said, I think it was the first or second night of the retreat, that the I is not a noun, but a verb, as we see into this changing experience. Uh, there is dukkha, this unsatisfactory, unreliability, old age, sickness and death, constant change, the conditionality of all experience. But yet it's possible to experience this dukkha without reactivity, without contention. So, a few stories I'll tell from hospice. I was with um, a very powerful experience. Just a few few minutes together with a woman, Alice, who is um, one of the earliest women surfers in San Francisco, surfing on Ocean Beach. So probably in her early 90s. And a quite colorful character. And uh, she was at the very end of her life. A lot of body discomfort kind of the pain that's inevitable of being in the body. But she was absolutely clear. She did not want any medication that would cloud her mind. She wanted to be fully present. And in my experience in being with her, there was no evidence of any reactivity or contention. Peace was there right in the midst of that very strong physical suffering was powerful to see, inspired my own practice. From um, Analyo, suffering unlike unsatisfactoriness or dukkha is not inherent in the phenomena of the world, only in the way in which the unawakened mind experiences them. This is indeed the underlying theme of the Four Noble Truths as a whole. The suffering caused by attachment and craving can be overcome by awakening. For an arhat, one who is fully awakened, the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena is no longer capable of causing suffering. So we might even be experiencing that at times in the hall. 
maybe when we're just present with a painful sensation in the body, being intimate with the direct changing nature of the experience, and the reactivity, the contention to that experience might drop away. Present with a pain that's inevitable, but not experience the suffering that arises in the mind in resistance to what is present. It might even be with an emotion that's present, maybe even in the present of a very strong emotion. Sadness, or grief, anger, just being present for the felt experience, but without a reactivity to the experience. When we experience this, we're, we're tapping into the deeper peace that's possible on this path of practice. So, my experience in hospice also kind of pointed the way to understanding craving as a cause of suffering, seeing the great peace that's possible when the force of craving subsides, this craving for sense pleasure, for existence, for non-existence, the craving that is the cause of dukkha and the cause of the mental suffering that arises in response to that craving for sense pleasure, kind of an unsatisfied thirst for what is pleasant and pleasurable. So an experience of meeting a resident in hospice um, where a sense of that craving was absent. Shane had just uh, arrived the day before and as it turned out, uh, just lived a few days there. And I walked into the room and asked if I could spend some time together. And they said yes. And I said, how is it being here? Felt very peaceful in the room, but felt a greater sense of peace as they looked around the room slowly, said once again, everything is new. And then paused 30 seconds later, looked out the window, saw the top of a tree. Once again, everything is beautiful. And another pause, and then will you serenade me? And, uh, there's no sense of resistance or contention to the present experience. There's a sense of deep equanimity, great clarity. There's no expression of love, but there's a feeling of love. And there is a sense of aliveness, freshness, newness that they were experiencing. Quite amazing. And if you've listened to me chant, you probably know I really can't sing. So I had to tell Shane, I, I can't serenade you. And they said, yes, you can. <laughs> so I sat down and held Shane's hand and that was a serenade, sitting in silence together. So I can have some, some such deeply intimate experiences with people being fully present, forces of greed, aversion, delusion, greatly subsided. Some of the most intimate experiences with people I don't even know, didn't even know. Yet I feel I saw their hearts so completely. A story of uh, Russell, who was there for three or four months, and I was with him uh, for his last eight hours. and. Uh, he lost the ability to speak in those last eight hours. Entire time he was there, I never saw him have a visitor. I don't know if he did or not, but I didn't see one. But in those eight hours, the, the beautiful qualities of the heart were so strongly present. At times, joy. I would express them in words, because he couldn't, but mostly silence. Deep field of equanimity. 
was holding the field. It was immediate respon- immediately responsive to feel joy as it arises, arose to feel compassion as it was known, open to loving kindness. And it's quite amazing to sit for that time period with the Brahma Viharas that were arising and passing in awareness and recognize they weren't his, they weren't mine. They were kind of like innate qualities, innate qualities of awareness itself that were present. Breaking through the delusion of separateness. I never left a shift, uh, volunteer shift, feeling sad. I always left feeling generally contented, peaceful, sometimes a sense of equanimity kind of the heart being open and responsive. And a lot of gratitude, a lot of gratitude as well. Sometimes the family members after after death would be so open, so open to awareness and so accepting of the experience they had just had. And a couple of times, one, one uh, husband a woman who had died said to me within five minutes afterwards, what is this awareness? This awareness is, this awareness, it's so powerful. And another time a family member said, so tell me the essence of the Buddha's teachings. <laughs> if it were the Buddha in his time, the Buddha would just speak the magic words at just the right time. And the being he spoke to would realize our hardship complete awakening. Didn't happen. (laughs) So, some lessons I learned from the hospice work and being mindful of death. Recognizing the beautiful hearts of every being. Kind of the Buddha within, the potentiality of awakening, seed of awakening within every being the recognition of the inevitability of death, the ordinariness of death. Recognizing and understanding this level of impermanence at a a deeper and more profound level. Letting go at a deep level of the fear of death, the fear that underlies so many other forms of fear. Nothing to fear with death. So we will grieve. We will have losses in our lives and it's natural to grieve. It's part of life. But it's possible to deeply kind of uproot this fear, to to begin to let this fear drop away. And like any other part of our practice, it's turning toward the direct experience that supports the uprooting, the seeing through of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. So it inspired my practice to recognize that peace is possible not only at the end of our lives, but right here, right now. Kind of the inspiration of my practice to be more intimate, to be more directly present for the direct experience to surrender more deeply, to be present with a courageous, compassionate heart, even in the midst of great suffering. That's one of the key calls of our practice, to be present in this way and to directly know the experience of dukkha, the experiences of suffering, to begin to understand the force of craving, this insatiable, kind of insatiable kind of thirst, and to begin to open the door to the third noble truth, to the peace that's possible. And really to tap into the recognition of the mental suffering that arises in response to the reactivity and contention to the unwanted present moment experience to not having what we want, not having what we desire. 
from Trele Kyagbang Rinpoche. Dukkha is not produced by things themselves or by their insubstantial nature. Rather, our minds have been conditioned by ignorance into thinking that eternal happiness can be obtained through things that are ephemeral and transient. And from Nisargadatta, pain is physical, suffering is mental, suffering is due to clinging or resisting. It is a sign of our unwillingness to move, to flow with life. Although all life has pain, wise life is free of suffering. With our practice, we present, stay with our direct experience, very intimate with our direct experience, to see when the force of this reactivity and contention is present, perhaps when the hindrances are present, and then to recognize our absence. And then with the absence of the hindrances, the seven factors that Susie spoke beautifully about last night, that naturally come forward. And the force of Dhammavachaya, force of investigation, to see into the direct experience with a greater level of curiosity. I love this quote that I wrote down. I saw a lot of other pens writing at the same time last night when Susie said, this point is reached where curiosity becomes stronger than the desire to avoid it, to avoid pain. Curiosity becomes stronger than the desire to avoid pain. So we let the light of awareness into the whole of our experience with a sense of curiosity. I had a great teacher for some years, uh, next, living next door to me in San Francisco. His name was Buster, my neighbor's dog. And whenever my neighbor wasn't home, Buster barked, 55 out of 60 minutes. <laughs> this dog had a lot of anxiety. Over time, I was able to open my heart to compassion for this little dog. But it was a great teacher because again and again, I would sit down to practice meditation. And there was a desire for quiet. And there was a noise. There was a hearing of the barking. And there was a craving for that not to be present. And then there was a clinging that took hold of, I need this dog to be quiet, to have a good meditation. And I need to talk to my neighbor about this dog. Suffering taking hold. And then beginning to unwind and being present. Being able to be present with just the hearing. Hearing being known. Perhaps unpleasant. But kind of being with it again, 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 and again, and again, till the dog didn't cause any disturbance. And the dog was never causing any disturbance. It was all in the mind. The disturbance was in the mind, the reactivity. Uh, returning to those, those painful body sensations I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that I experienced, as I was present with them over time, this intimate way, allowing the emotions, some of the stories, the healing to happen. Even with all that, the sensations still arise, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes neutral. But there was a realization that about 99% of the pain was as a result of the re resistance, the contraction around the sensations. I still experience the sensations, but very rarely as painful sensations. It's not a resistance, it's just sensation is unpleasant. No more, no more reactivity, sometimes just a little bit. So that's not always the case with the pain that we all experience. But oftentimes, most often, the reactivity is greatly multiplying the discomfort in the body or the mind.
So in the passive practice with a direct understanding, direct realization of the noble truth of dukkha, direct realization of the noble truth of the cause of dukkha, I'm sure we'll be talking more detail about these in the coming weeks. There's the opening to the third noble truth, the noble truth of the end of dukkha that comes with the end of craving. And all practices lead in this, this direction. So I can think of brooks, lead to streams, lead to rivers, lead to oceans. So for all of us, our practice is leading in this direction to the third noble truth of the end of suffering. It comes with a complete letting go and the clarity that arises with the first and second noble truths having been realized. From the Buddha, realized is the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. And I want to emphasize we all have moments, glimpses of this great peace that's possible. When the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion have greatly subsided, when we experience great ease, contentment, reactivity, contention, a mind is not present, hindrances subsided. These are moments of great peace that we can really appreciate. Captured in this quote from Ken McLeod, what is freedom? It is a moment-by-moment -moment experience of not being run by, by one's reactive mechanisms. So appreciating these moments can, can really deepen the grooves of our practice and support uh, support our practice at a very deep level. And just to touch on the fourth noble truth, the, the, the path, the noble truth of the path leading to the very end of dukkha, the noble eightfold path. Wise view that recognizes the four noble truths, that recognizes the law of karma, that all actions have consequences. The second path factor of wise intention that recognizes an intention before every action, the cultivating cultivation of the intention of renunciation, of loving kindness and compassion that manifest in wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, the factors of sila, and that support the practice factors of wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness. These eightfold path factors are a practice for the whole of our lives, but they're a practice right here. All of these factors coming together in our practice right in this very moment. So they're very much in our practice right now as we uh, are practicing here on this retreat. From the Buddha, the noble eightfold path gives rise to vision, gives rise to knowledge and leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So, there is this Eightfold Path. And yet you could say that uh, the path of practice leads to what are, is already here. And if the forces of greed, aversion, delusion subside, when they are fully absent, we realize all we're seeking is already here. A quote from Minga Rinpoche. The insight the Buddha discovered is so simple and yet so difficult to accept. His teaching introduces us to a dormant, hidden, unrealized part of ourselves. This is a great paradox of the Buddha's path. We practice in order to know what we already are, therefore attaining nothing, getting nothing, going nowhere. We seek to uncover what has already been here. Uh, let's sit for a few moments.
period and return at uh, 9 o'clock for the chanting and the last sit of the evening. Thank you for your kind attention.